Hello. Hello. Am I there? Good morning. Being relevant for today uh, <clears throat> is my passion. I want the gospel to be relevant for today. Anything I share, uh, I really want it to be applicable for the days in which we live. That's, that's what drives me. If it isn't applicable for today, if it doesn't have any meaning for today, why are we spending any time on it? Why is it even worth spending any effort on? But if it's relevant for today, it's everything. It means everything. If we can engage with God and what he wants to engage with today, right here, right now, with all the narratives that are happening in our midst, if we can engage kingdom thinking and kingdom narratives, we can change the atmosphere in the here and now. And that's what I believe, and that's what I strive for. I hope that's in your hearts, too. I'm not sure why I'm crackling. I know one thing, the enemy does not like this message. Because... Uh, I woke up, I slept good until about 4.30, and then I woke up and I had stomach all messed up. And I was fine when I went to bed, so I think the enemy doesn't want me to share what I'm about to share. <clears throat> so in this season that we now live in, it is certainly easy to see the onslaught of evil, isn't it? In and through humanity, even. It seems that every day we hear of some heinous things that somebody or somebody's are doing. And it just causes us to shudder and think to ourselves, what is the world coming to? How many times have you said that in the last few years? What is the world coming to? <laughs> I know I've said it a lot of times, many times. And then I've had to get my focus back. Okay, Lord, the world is coming to your kingdom. I, my eyes are seeing this, but you've got a goal and you've got a plan. Never take your eyes off of that. And in so observing these things, we can easily find ourselves saying that humankind is sinful, corrupt, and deplorable. Isn't it easy to make that assessment? Whether it's right here in little old Joko County or Somalia or Samaria or wherever. Anywhere in the world, we see things happening, we just kind of go, oh my gosh. Humanity is losing its mind, doing weird things. And we can even quote scripture to substantiate that thinking of the corruption of human being. Right? How many of you have got an arsenal of scriptures that talk about the corruption of humanity? Well, let me remind you of a couple, if you have forgotten. For example, Jeremiah 17, 9. This is the one I hear often when we talk about the corruption of humankind. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Isn't that just a blanket statement that makes it sound so detestable? All of us are so detestable because we're human. I want you to hang on with me for a minute. I'm going to bring you down into a pit, and then I'm going to take you out. So don't freak out on me, okay? I'm not going to beat up everybody. 
I'm just kind of setting a framework of their modern group think in the church. And then I'm going to bring you to a higher level of thinking. So let's look at that Jeremiah verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Other translations, that's the NIV, other translations say the heart is wicked, desperately sick, corrupt, incurable, unsearchable. And the Hebrew word there for deceitful is aquad. I'm not a Greek or Hebrew scholar, so if I mispronounce them, forgive me. Cyril, please. <laughs> but it's aquad, which means crooked, deceitful, insidious, and tracked by footprints. Tracked by footprints, even. The Hebrew word for beyond cure is anash, which means weak, sick, and incurable. So just taking that Jeremiah verse, we could go, wow, humanity is a mess. Right? I know I'm leading you somewhere. Hang with me. Don't freak out. And isn't this how often we see humanity and even accept the things happening in the world? But of course, we're only human. What did you expect? What did you expect? We're only human. If we have this thinking about humanity. Am I okay? Can you guys... Hey, this is a new one. Test. Sounds like I'm popping popcorn back there. It's annoying. <laughs> I think the enemy really hates this message. I really do. Yeah, I rebuke that thing in Jesus' name. You okay? Okay. Oh, you think that's what it is? <laughs> I even took my phone off today because I figured I didn't want my phone to mess with it. Uh-huh. All right, well, let's try this. Are we done popping popcorn? Too early, too early in the day for popcorn. Actually, you know, Greg finished early with worship today, so... Uh... Maybe if I get away from the stage a little bit, maybe that'll help. Greg finished early today, so I got a lot of time to preach. Okay, getting back to where I was, isn't it easy to see the corruption in humanity? And sometimes even when we look in the mirror, and we go, huh, there's something corrupt in that guy. 
and it challenges us sometimes, especially as we walk with Christ and we have a hard time fathoming what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we see the enslavement that seems to be attached to us as we walk. And in some ways it gives us uh, excuses. Well, I'm only human. What did you expect? I'm prone to failure, so why should I try? I'm a sinner. Sinners sin. Don't judge me, man. That's a lot of the thinking I see in and out of the church. And I don't think it's healthy. I think it's a perversion of the truth. One more verse just to substantiate that thought. Didn't even God say to Moses in Genesis 6, 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Remember that moment just before Noah's ark? God says, oh my. It seems like the heart, the thoughts of man is continually corrupt. I'm going to have to do something different. I'm going to have to do a reset. Ooh, did I use the word reset? I'm being culturally relevant. So, even God was troubled at humanity at a point, and he kind of did something different. He did a reset, and he moved on to something else. Now that I've beat us all down into a pit of despair of how crummy we are, I'm going to tell you what I believe God sees and what God thinks. Here's a quote for you to wrap your head around. Uh, some of you who carry heresy meters in your pocket, you might want to turn them off for a minute. <laughs> Don't turn on your meter until after I'm done today. Because at first you might have the meter peg into the red. Here's a quote. Once you start devaluating, devaluing and criticizing humanity, you will often be applauded for having great theology. But once you begin to value humanity the way God does, you will often be accused of heresy. Ooh. Ooh. That seems to really challenge some group thinks in the church. I will. I'll read that again. Once you start de devaluing and criticizing humanity, you'll often be applauded for having great theology. But once you begin to value humanity the way God does, you will often be accused of heresy. Now, I understand in the Old Testament, the prophets were often accused by God as false for always prophesying good to people who were acting out evil. So to praise humanity for evil conduct and say that God is okay with that is incorrect. God rebuked the false prophets of the Old Testament for prophesying good to the conduct of evil. But 
those prophets that declared the favor of the Lord upon a people who were pursuing him and obedient to him, God acknowledged them and fulfilled their words. And then remember, we are in the New Testament. We are in the New Covenant. We are in a time when it's changed. We are in the year of the Lord's favor. Remember when Jesus said, we are in the favorable year of the Lord? He was quoting that verse out of Isaiah, and he didn't finish the verse from Isaiah. The verse from Isaiah says, we are in the, uh, the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. But Jesus didn't quote the part about the day of vengeance of our God. He only quoted the, day of the, Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. And we're still in that. We are still in the year of the Lord's favor. Granted, that day of the Lord's vengeance is coming. But it isn't now, and it isn't ours to declare. And it isn't ours to enforce. Ah, we're on the same page. It just seems so many... Too many so-called prophetic voices are declaring doom and gloom upon humanity these days. It says, though God is really ticked off, and he's going to thrash the whole world before Jesus comes back. This thinking shows up over and over again in many voices as they warn of the soon return of Christ. Uh, This, in my opinion, is bad eschatology and bad theology, which paints a picture of an angry God who is going to delight in destroying his most treasured creation, humanity. Who would be thrash and destroy his most treasured creation? God is long-suffering, no question about it. He is contending with mankind through this season, even though they, many are in rebellion. And it breaks his heart. But he's not thinking, oh, goody, goody, someday I get to just destroy them. Here's one for you. We have a saying around here, devil bad, God good. But too many people are saying, devil bad, God mad. I don't think God's mad at all. I think there are things that hurt his heart and causes him grief. Even as in Genesis, that text was God's heart was troubled. Do you know that Jesus was troubled? Scripture says that Jesus was troubled at the stubbornness of the Pharisees' hard hearts. There are things that trouble God's heart. But he's not up there just looking forward to that day when he gets to thrash everybody. It's not even on his radar. So let's go way back to the beginning of creation. God made man in his own image, right? We know from Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our own likeness. We're all familiar with that verse. And we go, yeah, humankind created in the image of God. Beautiful thing. So let me ask you, when in history did that change? When did we no longer become like his image and likeness? I know I'm toying with you. 
Some might say at the fall in the Garden of Eden. It's true that sin and death entered the world at that moment and permanently corrupted the earth so that everyone from that moment on would be stained or sick or corrupt, as Jeremiah said, by the presence of and our participation in sin. Something went awry at that moment. But did our created essence change? This is a question you need to ask and answer yourself. Did that thing that God created, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, conspired and created in his likeness and in his image, did it change? Or are we all still in his likeness and in his image at our creation? I challenge you to answer that. We didn't suddenly morph into the likeness and the image of the devil. There's no verse for that. There's no biblical text for that. Our likeness and image never morphed into something else. Yes, the earth was invaded by sin and death. We know that. And it has affected everyone from that day on, clear down to this very day. We live with its effect today. But our likeness and our image has remained. Everyone, every person ever born. At this point, many of you are starting to get uncomfortable. <laughs> That's okay. Uncomfortable is good. It challenges your thinking. I floated this idea at a uh, Friday morning men's group a few weeks ago. I said, what is the base nature of humanity? What is the base nature of humanity? You know, if you ask a lot of Christian leaders, they'll say the base nature of humanity is sin. Sinner. We're all tainted, we're all corrupted by sin. But our base nature has not changed. And that includes every human being. At conception, as we became humans in the womb, we were God-likeness. Now when we're born and we're subject to all this stuff out here, it messes us up, no question about it. Nobody gets out of this alive. Nobody gets out of this unstained, untainted, except one that I know of. You know, the word uh, in the NIV, I read the NIV, I love the NIV, but in many texts in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament uh, NIV uses the uh, term sin nature. Like a good classic example of that would be uh, uh, the Romans 8 context, Romans 8, 6 through 8, talking about uh, the conflict between the, the spirit and the flesh. But the NIV uses the word sin nature. What does that immediately insinuate when you hear the term sin nature? 
that our nature is sinful and somehow locked in, permanent, unescapable. But that's not the proper translation for that word. The word sin nature used in the NIV isn't a healthy translation. The real word there is flesh. It's flesh. So you owners of an NIV, whenever you read in your New Testament and it says sin nature, rewind the tape and go flesh. Put flesh in there. And it'll begin to make a little bit more sense. It'll look a little bit different. It won't lock you into the idea that your sin nature is your base nature. And that's what we're talking about right now is our base nature. Now I get it. We get corrupted. And we know people around us who are really corrupted. And we're astounded sometimes at the measure of the corruption and the destitution. But that is not our base nature. That is a product of something over time and exposure. Is anybody sinless? No, absolutely not. Barring one, Jesus. Hang in there. I'll put this together a little more as we go on. Getting awful quiet in here. So the very term sin nature automatically makes us think that our base nature is sin. And we Christians are really good at reminding ourselves of this. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's an identity statement. I don't think that's good. I don't think that's healthy. Listening to Greg lead worship this morning, man, talk about those declarations of identity. Wow. I mean, if we immersed ourselves with thinking like was in those songs this morning, it'll radicalize your thinking and how you view yourself and how you look at the world around us. But we're so used to sliding back into that, that covering of cloak of, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I really can't do anything. And we emasculate ourselves. We make ourselves powerless by buying into it. Do we fail and, and screw up at times? Absolutely. Every one of us. We do. Truth is, there is no foundation for the translate, translators to use sin nature. That's an incorrect term. It should be the flesh. That is the proper translation, the flesh. All right, Max, what's the difference between sin nature and the flesh? Good question. First off, the Greek word for uh, flesh is sarx, S-A-R-X. Again, I don't know how I'm pronouncing it right, but uh, you'll just have to deal with that. I have a concordance and I can look them up, okay, so I can write it down. I don't know how to say it. I'm not a Greek. <laughs> so sarx basically means flesh, body, material, materiality, kindred. It actually has many uses in Scripture, many uses. And by the way, sarx is the uh, same word used to describe Jesus' earthly body in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
So our visa translate that, and the word became sin nature and dwelt among us? No, it's the same word. Sarks. Granted, Jesus seemed to have a little something special going on. But he was created in flesh. Just like we were created in flesh. I know that. Wrap your head around that one. The term sin nature insinuates a base nature that is corrupt from the get-go, and we are conceived with it in our DNA. <clears throat> Therefore, it is inescapable. Sin is in me, and I am sin. Some of you may be thinking of Romans chapter 7 right now, where Paul writes about the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. I want to do this, but I do that. I can't do that. I'm struggling with this. My, my fleshly body wants to do this, but my spirit wants to do this. He's talking about this struggle. And the proper translations there is flesh, not sin nature, flesh, warring with the spirit. So is there a conflict between our flesh and the spirit? Absolutely. We all encounter it every day. But we have something that is an advocate for us and helps us to live this life properly. I would rather, instead of saying sin is in me and I am sin, I would rather have it said, sin is in me, but I am not sin. I am not sin. And even when I sin, I am not the sin. I sinned. Yes, but I am not sin. Somehow we've got to wrap our heads around this. Otherwise, we'll stay in that suppressed, oppressed identity that we're just helpless, crippled creatures. The flesh is more of a condition and not an identity, <clears throat> which certainly extracts its toll on every one of us, right? Yeah, sure does. We all have a, a pretty bad scorecard in that, I'm sure. It is inescapable. We experience it in this world every day of our life. It is not a question of, can I keep from being affected by it? But rather, how do I get victory over it? How do I live a victorious life despite the fact that I am flesh and I live in a world that has sin. We need a champion. Thank you, Greg, for that song this morning. You are my champion. Giants fall when you stand. Heard that song this morning and went, yes. The spirits speak in the same language. I love it when the worship service confirms your message. Jesus is our champion. Okay, at this point, some of you are having a hard time wrapping your head around this. That's, that's okay. Let's look at another verse that personally have challenged me over the years. Very common verse, Romans 3, 23. 
Wow. Got the popcorn popper going again. Jason, did you mess me up out there? <laughs> Romans 3.23. Many of you probably know this one by heart. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know this verse well. We can probably quote it in our sleep. Many have used it in gospel presentations. It's appropriate. But have you ever taken the time to really ponder what it is saying? All have sinned. It does not say all are sinners. All have sinned. The Greek word there is hamerton, which means to miss the mark. It means to shoot for something, but to miss. It's an action. All have sinned. We missed the mark. We made an effort. We missed the mark. How many have missed the mark over and over in life? Yeah. You don't have to show me your hands. I know. I know that's all of us. Don't worry. I'm with you. Second part of the verse, fallen short. Power. Fallen short infers a fallen effort, a failed effort. The Greek word there is hesteronomatia. It means to come late, to come behind, to be behind, to come short. So if you were a bow hunter and you were shooting at a target, your arrow would go pew. You wouldn't make it to the target. That's what that means. And I'm really going through the microphones today, aren't I? Yeah. Try another one. Test. Hey, if it makes my voice sound bigger. Trouble is, now I got a leash. So, to fall short means to uh, come up short. Our effort come up short. Our arrow goes ping, tunk. Kind of like a cartoon, you know. We think we got a great shot, you know, we pull back. And it goes tunk. And we go, <laughs> dang, missed again. And then the third part of that verse that has troubled me and caused me to really think about things for a lot was, all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. So our conduct that has been to miss the mark and to fall short has caused us to miss the glory of God. Not his righteous standard not his supreme law, not that perfection that somehow we think that he calls us to, but his glory. The Greek word there is doxa. It actually means honor, renown, splendor, divine quality. We were meant to be active participants in the glory of God. Not our glory, his glory. We were the crowning achievement of his creation. 
He made us to be like him, to share eternity with him. I'm going to lose it here. There's something spectacular about this dynamic that we don't, we can't wrap our heads around. We are going to spend eternity with him. And what was lost in the garden is going to be restored. That incredible relationship of oneness, of actually being enveloped in his glory, is going to be restored. And right now, it's hard to fathom that. It's hard to wrap our heads around that. But that's what we were created for. Notice it does not say all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. It says all have sinned. That implies conduct, a practice of doing sin. Now we all fail this one miserably and God knows our failures. And this is why he sent Jesus to be the great reset. There's that word again. I thank Bob Friedel for giving me the title of this message, The Great Reset According to God. We were in a Friday morning, Friday, Monday morning, try that again, Monday evening prayer group, and uh, Bob Friedel was there, and he just says, oh, man, I just felt like the Lord was speaking to me. He said, uh, you know, I was, I was praying about the whole uh, narrative today about the Great Reset, you know what I'm talking about, and how organizations and men of power and people of power are trying to manipulate our world into something else, and are calling it the Great Reset. And he said he had a revelation from the Lord, and the Lord said, I have already done the Great Reset. And I just went, bam, that's the title of my message. Jesus is the great reset. What was broken in the garden by our failures and what was meant to be by God initially in the garden but broken there was reset at Calvary. It was reset. Now, we still live in the world of, of uh, corruption and sin, no question. But as you know, that veil in the temple at that moment when Jesus died and breathed his last, it was torn. It separated the veil, a, man, a veil that separated God from man. It was ripped. It was torn. It was a great reset. It was relationship restored. And I know our sin gets in the way sometimes. And we have a hard time approaching the Lord because we feel unworthy but it is reset. And that is not only our exciting hope for us, that is our message. That is our message. We get to give that message away. We get to be the representation of God's great reset. We get to declare it. Here's another verse for you. Psalms chapter 8, 
You're probably, many of you are familiar with this one as a song, <clears throat> probably some many songs with Psalms chapter 8 in it. But it starts out, O Lord, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then it goes on in verse 3 through 6. It says, When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Yet you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hand. You put everything under their feet. So here's the psalmist. I believe it was Asaph who wrote this one. Uh, he's just having a moment with God. And he's going, wow, Lord, how majestic is your name. How majestic. And then he has this revelation. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of men that you care for them. Yet, you have made them a little lower than the angels. He's just declaring something that he's suddenly having the revelation of, that mankind is something significant. It's in our Bible for a reason. So we would remember who we are. That we were meant to rule. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. This verse has two clear applications. Uh, <clears throat> usually in a, in a verse of the Bible, you'll, you'll have one, one kind of one interpretation of the verse, but there can be many applications of a verse, how it fits in our life, culturally relevant. <laughs> so here the psalmist, he's recognizing the significance of humanity, the beauty of God's creation, even fallen as it was, even tainted by sin as it was, he was recognizing the tremendous magnitude of the creation of humankind. So that's what the psalmist is boasting about. But also the writer of Hebrews uses this very same verse and quotes it in regards to Jesus. It says, Jesus is the man that God fashioned a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and majesty. That, <clears throat> that comes out of, uh, I didn't, oh yeah, there it is, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, if you need the reference there. So the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but he was quoting the psalmist and saying, this verse has a fulfillment in Jesus even though the psalmist, maybe 2,000 years earlier, saying that was humanity. So it's actually got two parallels going on. Which one is right? Both. Both of them are right. In our narratives today that are in the earth, there's almost this thought and idea that humankind is the parasites of the earth. That somehow we are the poison, the corruption, the destroyer of this earth. Haven't you heard that? Yeah. 
This earth was given to humankind to rule and develop. We're supposed to rule it. We're supposed to manage it. We're supposed to utilize its resources and manage them. Not just plunder and destroy and not lock up and preserve in a museum. We're supposed to manage them. We're supposed to rule over it. We're supposed to use it efficiently and effectively. But use it, not lock it up. That's the problem I have with the whole uh, preservation movement is they make everything untouchable. I'm just gonna give you a pet peeve just because I feel like giving a pet peeve. It fries me. So when I go up into the national forest, <clears throat> BLM land, that's public land, and there's a big old gate on the road. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is public land. And now I can't go up there. My tax dollars provide for this. My tax dollars even paid for that stupid gate. And yet I can't utilize it. That's just a pet peeve of mine. <clears throat> I'm thinking to myself, this is just wrong. I don't even know why, why I said that. Oh yeah, managing, managing our natural resources. And the problem with that is, who gets to use that land if you can't drive into it? Nobody except the young and the healthy that can walk 20 miles. Yeah, you know, I'm getting up there in years and have an issue in my left ankle that's pretty bad that limits my ability to walk. I can't go out there anymore mile or two, and then I'm done. And that's the problem I have with like these big wilderness areas. As beautiful as they are, the only perfect people that get to go enjoy them are the young and the healthy. They can walk 10 miles a day. I know I'm ruffling some feathers. I love those natural areas too. I think it's beautiful that we conserve our resources but to lock them down and make museums out of them that only the most young and the healthy can enjoy? Okay, done ranting. I've noticed some things in my observation of humans. I used to work with a fellow named Oscar and he would have this saying, he would, he would come up to you really serious like and he would say, you know, uh, Max, being an outsider, what do you think of the human race? <laughs> and I would tune my antennas a little bit and go, <laughs> I always felt like an alien, you know? So I, I feel like an alien when I say this. I've noticed some things about my observance of humans. <laughs> While it is true that <clears throat> they can act out such vile things. They can also demonstrate such divine character in the moments that really matter. So many factors come into play that influence us, not force us, but influence us into a specific worldview, and we make lifestyle choices based on that worldview. We can choose to be good or evil at so many crossroads in life. A person who is raised in an abusive situation certainly has a, a, a disadvantage 
to someone who is raised in a godly, healthy household, right? But you know what? If we think about it, we've probably all seen people who have broke that stereotype too, that were raised in a very bad situation and somehow came out and were into a really good, healthy place. And on the same token, I've seen kids raised in very godly homes that went and did an evil lifestyle. So that doesn't ensure anything, really. It's a good practice to raise your kids in the ways of God, for sure, but that doesn't ensure they're going to stay there. So there's something called sin in our world, and we are always fighting against it, but it is not who we are. And because Jesus came and initiated the Great Reset, we have a whole future to choose to follow him and seek his kingdom and forsake evil, selfishness, and sinful practices. We get to choose to follow him and be a part of his kingdom, totally forgiven from the past. The Great Reset. Jesus never forces himself upon anyone. He always says, follow me. But, he, <clears throat> but it is always our choice. Always our choice. If one thing I'm learning about the world and life right now, it's like everything is a choice. Every darn thing is a choice. And once you set yourself on a path of thinking, a worldview, and you start making choices on that worldview, be prepared for the fruit that comes out of that worldview. Be prepared for the fruit from those choices. So many people aren't necessarily following Jesus that still act out of their base nature of God-likeness. Have you known people who are not Christians yet seem to demonstrate God-like character? I have. I work with a gal right now that she doesn't have any interest in God at all. And I've shared with her witnessed to her, invited her, and she's not interested. But she's very kind. She's very gracious. She's very much God-natured in her personality and how she deals with people. Huh. That doesn't make her born again. There's still that whole lordship thing going on. But her base nature, she chooses to live in it. Her base nature of God-likeness. She actually acts out her base nature better than a lot of Christians. Ooh, did I say that out loud? Sorry. My whole point of this whole thing is that God still values humanity greatly. You can tell the value somebody has for something by what they are willing to pay for it. Now I'm going to meddle a little bit. Oh, that's the car I want, Bob. Where's Bob? Oh, there's Bob. I'm just going to pick on a few people just for the fun of it. Oh, I got to have that guitar. Steve Shaw. Sorry, Steve, if you're listening to this. Oh, that house. I want to buy that house. So I want to go on that vacation. Ooh, I got to have that gun for my collection. 
Max and about 20 other men in here. You all know what I mean. You see that thing you want, you go, I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to save the money. I might sell something even so I can get that. The kingdom, okay. So let's go to Matthew 13. We'll wrap it up here. Matthew 13, common verses. Jesus is comparing what the kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew 13, uh, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then he, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. But I want, I had a revelation on this verse just two, three years ago. This is how Jesus views you. You are his treasure. Humanity is God's treasure. And he sold, he bought, he sold the farm to buy the pearl. He was willing to make a huge sacrifice. Jesus comes in the flesh. Says, I'll pay the price. I'll pay the price because I value humanity. I want to restore what was lost in the garden. It's my treasure. I'll pay it. I'll pay it. God is not looking to destroy humanity. And I challenge any prophetic voice that says he is. God, humanity is God's treasure, God's pearl. This should radicalize your view of God, humanity, and the future. This should shape our worldview and how we approach every aspect of this life and everyone we encounter. I have two invitations today. The first invitation is to anyone that maybe you've had a twisted view of humanity and seeing a more from a worldly, fleshly, earthly perspective and how maybe it's uh, chafed you a little bit about humanity and uh, thinking, yeah, God, destroy them all. They're a bunch of idiots anyway. That exists, that attitude exists in the church and it's unhealthy. So I'm challenging that attitude. When Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a joy for him to judge the world. He's not going to revel in it. It's just something that will have to happen. The other invitation I want to give is if you do not know this God... Who paid that price. If you don't know this God who sold all that he had to buy that pearl, I invite you to 
find him now. I invite you to come to him and get to know him. He says, come, follow me. I will show you my ways. I will show you my heart. I will lead you through this confusing life. And we'll walk it together. I have done the great reset. I have corrected what was broken. The relationship is restored. So as an invitation, if anybody would like to talk to me after service about knowing this God, maybe you've never experienced him, or maybe you've known God as a dirty, mean, and nasty God, and you want to have your perception changed, and you want to talk about that, or if you just want to come to know him today, today's your day. I'll be available if anybody wants to talk to me. So let's stand and pray, and we'll get you out of here. Lord, we thank you for the great reset. We thank you that your heart is for humanity, that you paid the high price, that you bought the field, the treasure, you bought the pearl, and it is us. It is people. We thank you, God. Thank you, God. God, I pray that everyone here and anyone listening to this afterwards would have a revelation of your great love and they would just want to know you more. They want to lay hold of your heart. We want to lay hold of your heart and know your ways and follow you. And I ask your blessing on everyone in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Chairs up. Take the chairs up, please. Yes.